Hey, morning, 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 everybody. How are you doing? Good? Good. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate you so much. Let's give it up for Nate. Nate is just wonderful. Nate, Nate handles me every week because apparently I need handling from what, I, from what I understand. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate you. Um, let me make sure I've got my emblems here. Listen, um, last week was amazing. It was so great. Actually, it was just so great to be doing kind of big events and having a good time doing them again. The, the block party was amazing. The worship night was incredible. It was just this amazing weekend celebrating 18 years. And um, on anniversaries, we celebrate the ups of a community, but we also celebrate the downs of a community because over 18 years, you're going to have some, some really incredible times and you're going to have some relatively hard times. Excuse me for one moment. You know what, there's a lot of people standing in the back. If you guys could scoot together a little bit, that would be awesome. Kind of come towards the middle if you could, and we can get people to um, sit down on the sides if we could, because I know you don't want to stand through this whole thing, because I'm going to speak for a really long time, and you're going to get tired. Thanks for doing that. If you guys can find some seats, if you can, if you want, if you like to stand, that's cool. Um, but, but yeah, so, so over 18 years, uh, communities are going to go through really great times. They're going to go through some more difficult times as well. And um, we, we understand that churches go through good times and bad times, just like human beings, right? There are sometimes when we feel personally like really connected with God and sometimes when we feel far apart. Communities, churches feel the same thing sometimes. You've got these seasons of growth and, and you know, you've also got seasons of, of doubt and, and loss, right? Hope and hopelessness. But we've got to remember that the things that sustain us through those difficult times in church, but we also have to do that personally when it comes to our spiritual lives. And we have to think about what is it that really grounds us when it comes to this life of faith that we leave? What sustains us through those times of doubt that we have? And we can be honest about this, right? Sometimes our spiritual lives suffer. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we go through a season of, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to believe this. I'm not sure if I can do this and believe this. And if that's shocking to hear from a pastor, I'm sorry that you've never heard it before because we've got to react. We've got to deal in the reality of humanity that sometimes things are great and sometimes things are not. And the truth is, I think that our spiritual, I think that our lives are constantly being converted and reconverted if you're a believer. I look back at my life and I think about the times that I was converted and reconverted. I, I think back at baptism. I was 12. I got baptized in the Jordan River. It was super cool. Um, and, and it was appropriate. It was the right time in my life. I wanted to make that decision. I know some of us have been baptized at 12 and like, oh, it was too early. I didn't really understand what was going on. There's truth to that. I get that. There's also truth to the understanding statistically that if you make a decision for Christ in your early teen years, you, you are shockingly more, what's that? I got to say this correctly. Um, it is shocking statistically how much you will probably stay in church as opposed to if you're converted in your 20s. Do you know that? It's really fascinating. So this is one of the reasons why we've got camps, right? And we've got Bible classes and Sabbath schools and all those things. We shouldn't shy away from that. But, but you know, that's a, real, that's a real holy moment, if you will. 
You know, I think back to a few times where I did communion with people, where it just meant something different than it had at other times in my life. I know that when I was in seminary, I was reconverted into Christianity. And I know that seems kind of late and like, hey, you're in seminary studying to be a pastor. Is that when you should be converted? Maybe you should be converted before that. And I was, but I remember my, my professor putting out seven whiteboards across the front of the room and then mapping out covenantal history from, from Eden to the cross all the way through to the new earth and recognizing God's been doing the same thing. He's been up to the same thing from the very moment he incepted creation. He's been doing the same thing, trying to connect with his people till we ultimately are with him forever in the new heaven and the new earth. With the apex of that narrative being Jesus on the cross, him crucified and resurrected. Man, when I saw that and finally just saw it laid out, I was reconverted. I fell in love with Jesus again. Or I remember back to a time in a hotel room in Denver with five or six other guys where we just recommitted our lives to Jesus. And out of that became the one project and ultimately Crosswalk Church became a, an outpouring of that reconversion that I had and the guys in the room we all had. Or whether it's times with, with leadership teams at, at my previous ministry relive over at Loma Linda University Church and the, and the people that we worked with, or whether it's here at Crosswalk, I am constantly being converted and reconverted. And I look at those things in my life as holy ground moments. Obviously referencing when Moses was told by God as he's looking at this bush that is burning but not burning, and God says, hey, you need to take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. I've had some of those holy ground moments. You've probably had some of those holy ground moments. And a holy ground moment is when like, you're just sure that the Holy Spirit is there. Jesus is being honored and focused upon. We see God through Jesus more completely. And it's undeniable. Those holy ground moments are things that people can't take away from you. They're not necessarily miracles. They can be. But they're just these times where you're like, God was present in this space where I was. It can be in community. It doesn't have to be in community. It can lead to a conversion or a sacrament. It doesn't always have to. But we have these holy ground moments. You see, holy ground moments root us in our faith in God. They grow us deeply. They create in us this rooting our faith gets deeper and more mature and more sure. But holy ground moments don't just dig the roots deeper. They are actually anchors for our hope in Jesus Christ. The difference between roots is that trees don't really go anywhere. The difference between a root and an anchor is that an anchor holds a ship within a, a, a proximal space, but it has the ability to move around. So we need roots, but we also need anchors in our lives. And they're beyond us, right? It's not always coming from us. We realize that our faith in Jesus matters as much as how we believe in Jesus. The object of our faith is more important than the quality of our faith as that sometimes waxes and wanes. The holy ground became holy not because Moses stood on it. It became holy because God showed up. That's why it was holy. Holy ground moments aren't just miracles, although they can be. But they often aren't. But they're the recognition that God is here, present and powerful in our lives. 
And holy ground moments can be tied to rituals, but they are not always tied to rituals. They're not just rituals. However, rituals are important, right? It's not just baptism or communion or dedication or an anointing. But it can be those things because those things are, are things that have grown over 2,000 years to mean something to us as a faith community, as a people of God. Our ancient Christian rituals are important practice. In fact, we should probably practice them more. Not just baptism or rebaptism, but uh, anointing, prayer, confession. There's one we don't do, right? And communion. And, and here's the problem with communion. No church has less attendance than when it announces communion. You know that, right? And you do know it because you're like, communion this week? The beach looks pretty good. Right? Perhaps the problem is that we've made these things kind of inaccessible. Right? We've made these things so somber and so sacralized that they're difficult to get our head, hands, and hearts around. While they're not commonplace, nor should they necessarily be commonplace, they should be easy to access. I mean, should sacred mean untouchable? I mean, untouchable is actually a synonym for the word sacred. But, but should it be? Should it mean that we can't come in contact with those sacred things and those sacred moments, those holy ground moments? Those holy ground moments shouldn't be untouchable. You see, sacred means set apart, but it doesn't mean untouchable. It should be something different, but not so different that we put it on a shelf. I'm not going to ask. You don't have to raise your hand. But my bet is, statistically, with this many people in the room, some of you have collected Star Wars memorabilia over the years. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And some of you are collectors who, like, like Star Wars memorabilia. And some of you are collectors who think you're going to retire on it. <laughs> right? And those of you who think you're going to retire on it, let me explain to you what you do, although you know this. You buy a piece. Hopefully it's rare. And you get it and you open up the box, the outer box from which it came, and it's still in its actual packaging. And then what you do is you very carefully and gingerly take it over to a shelf and put it there. And then you step back. And then you never touch it again because it's worth something. You want to have a good time with your friend who collects stuff like that? It's super fun. You just go over to their house and you're like, oh, your collection, man, it's amazing. That's incredible. And they're like, yeah, you know, this piece, nobody has this piece. They only made 300 in 1976 and da 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 because they know way too much about it. Just do this. Just go, oh, awesome, and go for it. <laughs> you don't even have to touch it because you're not going to get within like three feet of it. Like that dude, and it's a dude. <laughs> it's just acknowledge that, all right? That guy who may or may not be very athletic will become very athletic in that moment. <laughs> that guy is going to stop you from touching that thing. <laughs> I worked with a guy who had, um, who had a lot of these, like a museum's worth of them. And, and um, you couldn't touch them because if you did, they would be worth less. Not worthless, but worth less. 
But I wonder, if something is so set apart that we don't use it, does it become less meaningful? I would say yes. And obviously we're not talking about Star Wars stuff because that does, you know, become, you know, more, more rare and more expensive. But, but let's take, for example, communion, all right? Church attendance is the very least when communion happens. And I worked, I worked at, it was my first church that I worked at in San Diego. Um, we, we noticed that, and so we stopped announcing it. But the look of, of just sadness on people's faces, when they would walk in and they would see those silver trays, you know what I'm talking about? Those multi-tiered silver trays. Whoever came up with those are genius, right? Because they start, they like take the top off and you're like, oh, how many are they fitting in there? And they're fitting 8,000 and they just keep coming out like clowns from a car. That's what I thought of it. The first time I saw that, I was like, that's genius. I don't know that it's that genius. It was for me. But you, you watch people's faces, they walk in and they're like, church, church, church. Oh. And there's this moment of like, can we leave? Now we're in. We're in the vestibule. I don't know what a vestibule is, but yeah, so we can't leave. And then, then but, but we would give you an out like earlier on, right? We'd give you an out. It was called foot washing, <laughs> which is actually called the ordinance of humility. And you people would leave. You'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to wash my feet. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to go to the restroom. Oh, yeah, there's my car. <laughs> Happen all the time. Like, we give you an out. So we'd always do it before the actual communion service. And I was always like, that's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. Because people are just going to walk out. And sure enough, people would walk out, right? And, and I've worked at churches where it's a little more relaxed. I've worked at churches where it is, it is an orchestral movement to do communion, right? There is literally somebody who is, who is coordinating it from the middle of the church, and, and like you just stand and it's nerve wracking when you're a pastor because I don't know why it's so, but you stand, stand and she's like, stand, sit. And you're like, sit. And then she's like, not you, that person. You're like, that. Do I go? Do I pray? Is it me now? And, and when you televise that. Now, don't get me wrong. It's beautiful. It's just frightening. I have a whole other story about that that I'm not going to tell you because it's not appropriate, but <laughs> it includes a bad word going out to the whole world because someone was so nervous. <laughs> and microphones, be careful. Um, but I wonder if the reason why people don't like to come is because we've made it so inaccessible. And the reason why we've made it so inaccessible is that we have a tendency to sacralize the process. It's really important we do it this way. This is the way a, my church does it, and this is the way my church does it. And um, it, gets, it gets crazy. If you've ever been to other denominations, you know, other faith traditions, they do it differently. I had a friend who was a part of a Coptic church, and when they would take communion, like they all took it from the same spoon. Everyone the same spoon. I was like, don't you get sick? And he's like, yeah, but we all get sick. <laughs> wow. 
Some churches do it with tincture where you take the bread and you dip it in. You got to have the right kind of bread because if you have fluffy bread and you dip it in, then it's going to get and it becomes this weird mash. Yeah. We do it in a certain way. All churches do it in a certain way. But, but what we do is we sacralize the process. This is how we do it. This is really important. The problem is it's not the process. It's the object. It's the reason why we do it. It's not the process that makes it sacred. It's the object of why we're doing it. It's not how you sing the songs. It's about who you sing them to. It's not about how you take the bread and the wine. It's what it represents. So should we make the process easier in some cases? I would say yes, Jesus did. You know that, right? Jesus made the sacrificial process completely simple. It stayed around for a few more years when in 70 AD, finally the temple was destroyed by Domitian and his, his troops and, and everything fell apart. But, um, but when Jesus was there, the sacrificial system was incredibly difficult. It was very, very complicated and it was also very userous. What I mean by that is you would go to the temple and even if you had your own animal that you were going to sacrifice, you had to get it vetted by the temple. And that took a long time. So what you would do is you would give the animal to the people at the temple and then they would sell you another animal that you could use so you could come in contact and get forgiveness from God. That is usurious, right? That's not selling a t-shirt in the lobby, right? That's, that's saying you don't have access to God unless you pay this money for, for us to get this animal, and that's why Jesus threw over the tables in the temple because it was a usurious system that wouldn't allow people access to God and he was not having that. So what did he do? He decided, listen, I'll be sacrifice of it. You see, Jesus made the object of the sacrifice sacred as opposed to the process of the sacrifice making things sacred like we see in the Old Testament. This could get really complicated and very academic, and we could go into that kind of a conversation, but let's just ask this question. How did this change things? How did Jesus on the cross change accessibility to the sacred? And we see it in Luke 23. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. We've got Jesus on a cross right now. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain... Now, I need you to understand what this curtain was. This curtain was not a shower curtain, right? This curtain was not a curtain you would have in your dining room. This curtain was like 80 to 100 feet tall. It was, it was about 16 to 18 inches thick, they think, right? Made of, made of heavy material. It took close to 100 priests to take the thing down, out, and wash it on a yearly basis. This was the thing that kept the unsacred from the sacred. This is the thing that stopped people from getting to the most holy place. And suddenly that curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Now what this means is that it was torn from top to bottom. It was not torn from bottom to top. It was torn from top to bottom and it, only, it could only have been a divine thing that happened. An angel of the Lord coming and ripping it asunder, tearing it apart. In so doing, recognizing that there is not a separation between what is holy and what is unholy. Because of what Jesus is doing on the cross at that very moment, everything becomes holy. 
And then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. At that moment, he said, now it's done. Not before that, now it's done. So this is why we see in Acts, we see the liturgy of the early church, right? The liturgy, the work of the people, the way we worship, the things that we do as Christians. This was their sacred moments in the early church, and this is what it looked like. And I quote this all the time because it's, it's simple and it's beautiful. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's the apostles' teaching? Jesus. That's it. That's what the apostles were telling people about. They weren't telling them what to eat. They weren't telling them, you know, how to dress. They weren't telling them how to act. They were saying, this is Jesus. Live accordingly. By the way, when you understand who Jesus is, you live accordingly. All those other things get into place. Amen. Right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, so they hung out together. And they hung out together a lot, so much so that they were sharing meals together, including the Lord's Supper. So it wasn't just every single meal that was the Lord's Supper. However, they also did the Lord's Supper in the midst of those meals and to prayer. And we're doing that right now, right? We've been learning about Jesus, the apostles' teaching. We're fellowshipping, singing together, worshiping together, hanging out together. We share in meals. We're about to do that. And we pray. So let's do it together. Take out your communion kits. And let's just recognize a few things about these communion kits. They're disgusting. <laughs> when you open it up, you got to open up the top part first, then open up the second part. If you open up the second part first and then try to get that little disc out, good luck. Right? I don't have my glasses on, so let me make sure I do it. Oh, no. There we go. That's unleavened bread. In one of my churches that I worked in early on, um, the woman who would make the communion bread, <clears throat> she believed in having it unleavened, but she also believed that butter is good. <laughs> and man, when you broke it off, because it would come in big chunks, when you broke it off, you'd break it off and then take another piece. And the person next to you would look at you and you'd be like, someone's coming. I'm going to eat this. It, but it's never really been about this. It's always been about the person that this represents. You know, the first time that um, the, the first time that Jesus talked about eating his body and drinking his blood was very inauspicious. He had fed the five thousand, and um, that night he got on a boat, and there's the interaction with Peter stepping out of the boat, and then the next morning he's on the other side of Galilee, and some of the people that he had fed the night before had walked around the Sea of Galilee and had found him, and they said, "Hey." We thought that miracle yesterday, I'm paraphrasing, we thought that miracle yesterday was awesome. We would like to see more miracles, especially of the food kind, because it's morning and we're hungry. And Jesus says, you're just following me because you like food. Again, I'm paraphrasing. You just want to see another miracle because you're hungry. And they said, no, really, the, you know, Moses did miracles and this, we want to see another miracle. And Jesus said, if you're hungry, cool. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they said, what now? What do you mean? And he said, no, I'm talking about my real flesh and my real blood. If that's what you want, you want a miracle, then why don't you eat this? And you know how they responded? I, it's an under translation if you ask me. In the NIV, it says, 
They said to him, this is a hard teaching, which again is underselling that, right? They're, they're like, what? And he's like, yeah, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? In fact, Jesus was so annoyed. Most of them left, by the way. They were like, well, wait, this guy's crazy. We don't know what you're talking about. Jesus is so annoyed at that point. He turns to his disciples and he's like, what, you going to leave too? The disciples are like, easy, man. Peter literally is like, where are we going to go? Like, we kind of hitched our wagon to you, man. It's too late. Our fishing boats won't have us back. That's the first time he talks about it like that. The next time he talks about it, he's in the upper room. And, and I, like reading, I like reading this from 1 Corinthians because it's Paul's take on it. And the reason why I like reading it from 1 Corinthians is Paul is a lot like us. He didn't get a chance to meet Jesus in the flesh. So he's listening to eyewitness accounts. He's listening to people who knew Jesus, right? Like we do when we read the Gospels. And so this is how he directs us to do it. He says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. Don't think it looked like this. And he gave thanks to God for it. He broke it in pieces. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so I'm going to pray. It's going to be a simple prayer, and then we're going to take and eat. The prayer is simple. It's like this. Lord, we remember and thank you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer, and then we're going to drink it. And the prayer is this. Lord, we remember, we agree, and thank you. Take and drink. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the, Lord death, the Lord's death until he comes again. This is holy ground. Not because we did that, but it's holy ground because Jesus is here. And you announce this. This is evangelism. This is growth. This is invitation. This is remembrance. This is sacred. But I also understand this might not feel right. Especially if you've been conditioned that the music playing softly in the back and the lights go down. And the pastor gets that pastor voice. You know the one. Lord, I don't even have one. <laughs> Can't even do it. Big silver things are being passed around. I get it. For the record, I love it. I like all the pomp and circumstance of it. But perhaps we've kept the sacred in its wrapping for far too long. Perhaps it's time to get it out and play with the thing, to access it, to share it, to even let it get a little dirty and a little grungy from use. Perhaps it's time to recognize that holy ground moments aren't so few and far between because I used to think that holy ground moments were very few and far between. I listed off a few earlier in the sermon. For a life of 50 years, it's not that many. But what I've been coming to realize more and more over the years these, these moments are more and more common. 
because more and more I want to recognize when Jesus is in the place, when he's moved into the building and the neighborhood. When we remember more consistently and when we expect Jesus to show up, that's when the ground becomes holy. What would happen if we realized that every moment given to us was a holy ground moment? And if we recognize that all of our paths are holy, they don't all look the same, they don't all sound the same, they're not all the same process, but they're all holy. And, and does, that, does that making the holy commonplace make it less holy or does it make God's presence much more palpable and palatable in our lives? What if we recognized that Jesus is holy and that he is all around us? And not only that, what if, we were, what if we recognize that we are surrounded by witnesses to Jesus all around us? Hebrews 12.1 says it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially sin that so easily trips us up. I mean, what if we got rid of some of the pomp and circumstance, some of the language of church? What if we got rid of some of the, some of the barriers that stopped us from, from living life as holy? And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Perhaps we should be living this way, unfettered, running the race that leads us to the finish line that is Jesus, but we're not running alone because Jesus is running alongside us to get to Jesus. Perhaps, just perhaps, we could recognize that the sacred is not untouchable. Rather, we stand in its presence always. Maybe we would recognize that this is a holy ground moment because we decided to come together and recognize who Jesus is. And maybe it didn't feel the way all the other communions in your life had felt, but it makes it no less holy because the process isn't what makes it holy. It's the God that we believe in that makes it holy. And it's the God that loves you that makes you stand on holy ground. Because he said, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will always be with you. There's nothing that you're going to be able to do to get me away from you. That's how much he loves you. So you are living holy ground moments because you are a holy ground people because of who Jesus is. So we're going to pray and we're going to sing and we're going to recognize this holy moment. Jesus, it is your grace that covers us. It is your love that surrounds us. It is your hope that motivates us. It is your, your incredible power that gives us the momentum that you've given us. Lord, may we be holy ground people. May we recognize those holy moments in our lives. May we drink them in and may we also understand that they are more than we ever thought they could be in volume and value in our lives. And so, Lord, as we sing this final song to you today and, and we decide that we are going to build our lives on your grace, on your love, on your hope, on your compassion, on your mercy, on your justice, on your healing, and on your love, Lord, accept these words of worship. Not because we're worthy, but because you're worthy. We pray this in your holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.